This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 A lot of people say, how did you get here? Everyone's fascinated by an Australian accent because no one thinks Australians can travel. And our hotel said to us, please, you know, just get back over here. We need you Australians back in Paris, which was really interesting. Everybody's QRing as they come in. A lot of workers and a lot of customers are all trying to meet in the middle and everybody's trying to be nice and calm and relaxed. But when you're running late for your appointment and your phone isn't working properly, it's all very um, new. So when you go and have your beer, you can grab a hard-boiled egg. There's a little pot of mustard often on the side of the hard-boiled egg. These brown bars are just extraordinary. I'm meeting a blind date. I'm on Tinder and I'm meeting a blind date at a brown bar. I say, I'll have a gin and tonic and a hard-boiled egg. That is not good for the breath, Caro. That is not good for the breath. I think Gay Alcorn did the right thing in deciding to end the tenure of Michael Lunig. And Michael Lunig is not the first cartoonist to upset me with some of his images. Good on you, Gay Alcorn. Sometimes you've just got to make a call. She delves deeper than anyone has before into this wild and troubled life. It's a story of two women, their lives entwined. It's action-packed, as I said, and it's absolutely absorbing. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome, potties, to this week's episode, episode 194 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. We are heading toward our 200th and we are still chatting on. Even Caro in Amsterdam has not diminished our capacity to talk over water and oceans and land. Corrie, that suspiciously looks like a blow wave to me across the waves. It is a blow wave across the waves, and I've had my colour done. I feel like a new woman. You actually look wonderful. You always do, but I must say, every the ladies of Melbourne must all be looking a lot better this week than last week. Caro, first of all, before we begin, because we want to hear about what you've been up to over there, we want to thank our show sponsor, Red Energy, 100% Australian-owned and operated and super-duper award-winning customer service. I can vouch for that because I am a Red Energy customer. Caro, uh, housekeeping and apologies and correspondence, do you have anything that you would like to add into the mix before I read a couple of emails? I made my apologies last week, Corrie. I'm apology-free this week. Good girl, good to hear it. Well, we, have, we have one here from um, Lynn Swinburne, our dear friend Lynn. Uh, lovely to hear from you, Lynn. And she says, um, we're still enjoying the podcast here. Um, Carol and Corey, uh, love what you're doing. That's very nice. A favour, please. I've stopped all my socials except LinkedIn, which even that she's considering is missing. And she doesn't get to all of the suggestions that we make on our weekly program, but she does receive our emails, but wonders if we can include the books and the Netflix recommendations as well as the recipes. Well, we do, Lynn. I'm going to defer to Miss Jane and bring in uh, bring in Jane. What's happening, Jane? How can people find out what's happening with what Carol and I talk about? Hello, ladies. Well, yeah, um, look, I do try and include everything. Sometimes you guys roll off like, 
10 books in 30 seconds and I get a bit lost. But the major recommendations for each episode are always going to be in the show notes, which is basically just the description in every show podcast. So in your smartphone, if you're listening on a podcast app, you just swipe across or click up or each app is different. So you might need to just, um, you know, find a friend that knows their way around the podcast app to find it. The easiest way sometimes is just to Google Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast. Our platform is Wooshka. And if you find that Wooshka, um, you can basically just click on every single episode. And I did send Lynn the link and there will be the full description, the full um, recipes and everything in there. So look, do our best to include every single mention, but often, uh, you know, we do talk about a lot per episode. So I try and get them all in there. But if you ever have any questions, if you want me to find a recipe or follow up on anything, just email me. Happy to help. Uh, Feedback at don't shoot pod.com.au. Oh, you're so helpful. And also, Linny, you can just press the rewind button on your podcast, can't you, Caro? Oh, nothing more annoying, Corrie. Come on. Now, look, we're, we're technically, we are going to get better and better at this, and we're going to have more and more ways of people looking up what we do, and there'll be news about that probably in the new year. But for now, Corrie, who's going to go first? I mean, things have changed so much in the last week since we spoke for you. Well, I've been on a road trip. Well, I, th- I think we should hear about your road trip because even though Victoria and Melbournians are out of lockdown, it's still a little dull here. Cara, before we just leave correspondence and so on, I, do you think we should apologise to the Queen for making light last week of her no, no more nighttime na- martini dilemma? Because she's now done well. Given that she was admitted to hospital the next day. Uh, well, I think... I think it was probably, um, not to point the finger, Corrie, but I think you were the one who was um, having a go at the Queen's drinking issues. We all agreed that we think a glass of champagne before bed is a fabulous idea. I think there must be so many nerves about getting the Queen ready for that big anniversary next year. And um, when you think about it, we've just assumed that she was never going to really get old. But, of course, she's going to get old. She's so well into her 90s. My daughter Rose's um, uh, opinion or reading of this is that she's got a broken heart, that she's just very, very sad. Oh, that's sweet because she's been a real... um She's been a real trooper since Philip died, of course, her husband of so many years. You know, this year she's she really once once the COVID threat was over in England to some extent, she's been out and about doing things. And I, I guess that's right. We've just assumed that she's repaired, but maybe it's all caught up with her. Good assessment, Rose. But anyway, I did feel a bit bad that we're, here we were saying, "Oh, come on, Queen, have a drink." And then, of course, <laughs> again, sorry about that. Again, I think that was probably your opinion. But no, we look, we're both obviously, I think it is going to be the prospect of the Queen not being around for you and I. I mean, she'd been Queen for years before we were even born. You know, she's been the ruler of, um, you know, okay, it's in name only, it's a nominal thing, but she has been the sort of link between the past and the present for so many people. It's going to be a massive change when she goes. I mean, I think Australia will probably become a republic at some point. It's interesting you say that, Cara, because in the space of um, a week or 10 days, I've interviewed both Malcolm Turnbull and Tom Keneally yesterday, actually, both huge uh, members of the Republican movement back in the 90s, if you recall, yeah. and uh, and still very outspoken, certainly in Tom's case. And both of them have affection 
for the Queen. They say their generation does and respect and regard. And they both feel exactly as you said, that there'll be no uh, shuffle toward uh, a, a republic until um, she's no longer the monarch. So, you know, that that's um, very interesting, isn't it? But listen, enough about me and and sending bad vibes to the Queen. I'm sorry about that. Um, last in Amsterdam, we want to hear Chapter 3. And, in fact, you had a little bit of a sojourn this week. Tell us all about it. Well, I've got a fascinating Dutch fact later on, which I'll share with you, and you won't be surprised to hear that it's food-related. I've managed to... I've talked about food in in the, this great um, city of Amsterdam in the Netherlands, but some fascinating little um, tidbits there. But, no, look... Very last minute, and you can sort of do that here. We headed off to Paris on Sunday. We had a three-day mini break in that beautiful city. Uh, I think Brendan was last there. Um, he did the Paris Marathon with a group of friends probably, I guess it was about five years ago. I haven't been there since um, New Year's Eve, 2012, 2013. Wow. It's still there, I can report. And... Um, it is so frenetic compared to Amsterdam. It's really and you, busy. And you took the kids and Sunday? The whole family went, wrote, my, the whole Dutch family, Rose and Oscar and Sunday. We received um, permission from Sunday's doctors to go away for three nights and we hired a car, again, very last minute. Um, we drove there, drove back. A lot of um, Dutch comments about the terrible Belgian roads and how... Um, you know, the Dutch roads change the minute you cross the border to Belgium. It was fine on the way there, slightly hairy on the way back. We, um, oh, we had a great time, Corrie. We stayed in a beautiful hotel in the second arrondissement. We walked and walked and walked, as you do. Um, everything was last minute, so we managed to get into some great places to eat. We did a rotation Four rich, smart meals out, lunches and dinners, and one person babysat and the other three went. Sunny came out for cocktails every evening into one of the passages or little um, tiny roos near where we were living. And she... Can I just interrupt, Carol? Where Give us an idea of where the sec- second arrondissement is because we're not all as familiar as we should be or love to be. <laughs> love to be, women. Well, um, it's... Sort of borders the 9th and 10th on one side. It's not that far from Opera. It's probably half an hour walk to the Marais, 20-minute um, walk to the Pompidou Centre, which has um, which had a fabulous Georgia O'Keeffe exhibition on that Rose and I went to, probably a half an hour walk to the... I finally got to the Picasso Museum because it's always been closed for reno- renovation when I've been there. Absolutely incredible. Sadly, the bulk of the Picassos hadn't been hung. It was a joint exhibition with Picasso and Rodin, but beautiful nonetheless. Beautiful old building, once a hotel. Um, and we were near a lot of those beautiful passages, you know, the arcades that are, you know, full of lead light and incredible old shops. And one was a passage to Panoramas, which was absolutely incredible, about a three-minute walk from our hotel. Sadly, right opposite our hotel was a dreadful bar with a crocodile out the front called the Australian Bar and these sort of barrels covered in faux Indigenous artwork. Oh, my God. Anyway, um, but no, it was, it was a busy big boulevard called the Boulevard des Poissons, Poissonnerie, I think, and just a great, great area to stay. Highly recommend it, obviously on the right bank. Um, walked and walked and walked, eight and eight and eight, just 
set off. Uh, one morning we just walked, we headed towards the Marais and then we realised we weren't far from Notre Dame. So checked out the rebuilding of Notre Dame, which has become an industry in itself and an, sort of our outdoor exhibition in itself. Had the world's most expensive morning coffee and hot chocolate on the Ile de St. Louis. And, oh, it was just, it was it was wonderful. And we drove well, home yesterday. You posted a photo, uh, one of a few photos on the Cornish Walkers WhatsApp group, and it looked like you were upstairs at the Pompidou Centre in the cafe up there. Yep, we had a um, Rose and I had a little um, coupe of. Um, I think we might have had a Verve Clico actually, Corrie. And um, there were, you know how they've got all the red roses on the tables? We sat outside. We're looking at Sacre Coeur one way and the Eiffel Tower the other way. And Rose decided to move the red rose from the table next door, which was empty, to our table. But the big metal thing that was holding it, sadly, the bottom had fallen out. Next thing we know, the vase is smashed to the ground, water everywhere. <laughs> the rose is lying there tragically on the table. And this American family, you know, American tourists, you actually heard a couple of Australian accents. It was extraordinary. Um, the waiter came over. He was very nice, kicked the glass under the table, said no one's going to care, and um, bought us the wrong champagne. So we uh, brought us the wrong champagne. So we told him we wanted not the rosé version, but the clear version. He came back. Everyone could have been nicer. There was probably only one rude Parisian the whole time we were there. It was just, we were talking about that a dreadful Netflix show, Emily in Paris, that I think we all got so desperate during the first lockdown that some people watched, I didn't. Rose said it was so racially profiled and so typecast about how rude and mean the Parisians are, which was not the case at all. And everyone was so lovely about Sunday. Not a lot of prams around. You know, it's not a, really a place you would necessarily take a baby where we stayed, but look, the weather was great. It rained one morning. I just highly recommend it. So we had lunch. Do you get Do you Sorry. get the feeling, Caro, that it's um that it's a city? The people themselves are really starved of tourism. Yes, um, the hotel asked us a lot. A lot of people say, "How did you get here?" Everyone's fascinated by an Australian accent because no one thinks Australians can travel. And our hotel said to us, "Please, you know." Just get back over here. We need you Australians back in Paris, which was really interesting. Um, Paris is very strict about the international vaccine passport, QR code, everywhere. Most places we went, we had to show it. So thank God we'd had all that sorted. Oh, thank um, God for and the trip to Utrecht. Thank God for the trip to Utrecht and the BSNs and all those um, clericals we did in the first two weeks. And also... Um, Masks. You have to wear masks in all the shops. There's that beautiful. Um, there's a beautiful ribbon shop inside a square, a sort of a drapery shop in the Marais. And I walked in, and they said you need a mask. And of course, I'd left it at home. It was my first day, so I had to then trot off and find a pharmacy and buy a pack of 50 masks. I was so desperate to get back into this shop and buy some beautiful ribbon. And um, oh, look, it was. Um, it was really interesting about the masks, but then you sit in restaurants, of course, and the masks come off, and as soon as they know you're double vaccinated, you can do whatever you like. Joy, so, oh, joy. I tell you what, though, Amsterdam feels quite sleepy. I mean, I felt I was in a vibrant European city, which I am, but Paris, oh, my Lord. Except I would still say not crammed with tourists like it normally is. So that was nice. Not so many queues at the museums, etc. So um, tell me about the week's cultural moments. You mentioned that you uh, 
visited from the outside the project that is the Notre Dame rebuilding, as everybody remembers that that terrible, tragic fire of a couple of years But knowing knowing the French, they probably turned it into an art installation, the, the rebuilding of it. Yes, I think there'd been... Oh, who's that artist who wraps everything? Oh, Christophe. Um, yeah, Christo had been and wrapped something not so long ago in Paris. We missed that. But, no, you walk all around the Arc de Triomphe and, and the back bit, which was so largely destroyed by fire, it is just horrendous. It's quite heartbreaking. But there's a story about what they're doing. There's a series. I mean, they felt like there were dozens of bands which are you know, the La Restore, whatever, Arc de Triomphe, which is all about, there's there's a whole industry now dedicated to restoring it. But I think um, probably the uh, the cultural highlight was that fifth floor of the Pompidou Centre with all the Miros and a couple of Picassos and oh, so many wonderful artists. And um, I suppose that period I just loved from the start of the 1900s to about 1950. And it was just stunning. Absolutely When I I was there in um, 2009, between leaving the Australian and starting the bookshop, I had a couple of weeks off, if you remember, Francesca, eldest daughter, was travelling for a year or a year and a half in Europe. So I whizzed over to see her, which was just so incredible. And we had this time in Paris, so brief but really great. And um, we went to the Pompidou bookshop and that's where I that's where I actually stayed there for an hour or two. That's where I got so many ideas for the bookshop, those white tables where they lay the books out with their covers showing Minimal, you know, so because, you know, as I said to Checker at the Pompidou Centre, books are works of art. They are actually little works of art. We need to display them in all their beauty. I love that bookshop. I love that gallery. Well, there's a great um, market in Amsterdam, Nordermarkt, and there's uh, an English, well, it's a great bookshop, but it sells books in English as well as Dutch, and it's also got, um, sells the Financial Times, the Weekend Financial Times, and last weekend's magazine had an article on the 20 best bookshops in the world, and there were none in Australia, uh, disappointingly. Some in some very far-flung places, but the only one is... My, that's obviously because my bookshop's closed. <laughs> well, they, 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 I was looking for the little asterisk at the end um, to tell us that, but it wasn't there, Corrie, sadly. But Shakespeare and Friends was the only one in Paris, which is a, you know, famous, famous bookshop, as we know, and they still allow writers to stay there for free, doss on the bookshelves, and as long as they help out in the bookshop and write a page of a story to, um, to leave at Shakespeare and Friends. I never got there. I left wanting to do so many other things, but I have to say that fifth floor of the Pompidou still doesn't disappoint, nor did the Picasso Museum just for the beautiful building. So feeling very cultural, feeling very lucky. And just for, you know, to top off a great road trip, stopped off at Ghent for lunch yesterday in Belgium. Beautiful old city, tiny, um, amazing castles and amazing churches, all built about one square metre from each other. And um, got home last night and felt extremely lucky to be here. Well, Caro, um, it's interesting that you mentioned um, that you mentioned Belgium because about this time last year or maybe earlier, maybe the middle of 2020, Belgium was the peak of the coronavirus. It had actually, Europe, Europe, yep. it had moved from Milan and that northern Italian region down to uh, Belgium. So 
So when you said you were going through Belgium Drive, I was a little bit concerned for you, actually. Oh, the, that main square in Belgium near the old castle. There was, you know, there was musicians there. All the restaurants were full. It was party time. The big worry at the moment is that sort of Eastern Europe, more um, Bulgaria, Latvia, those sort of places. Very, very worrying numbers there and very, very low vaccination rates. So, but speaking of vaccination rates, Victoria reached another deadline and you managed to go out. I want to hear what you did when you were, when you were allowed to escape. Well, we were so excited. As I think I said on the podcast last week, um, we all hit the phones and everything was booked out, everything from you, your hairdresser through to the restaurant or the cafe of choice. But we kind of we kind of lucked in and um, got, a, got a table for two, which is so funny because you spend every single night with your husband <laughs> all together and then watching Netflix. And there we were booking to go out on a romantic night out, which is just weird, isn't it, that you do that? But um, our friends, um, Trudy and Renee, were up for it as well. So they booked a table for two as well. And we thought, well, maybe we can join them or, or just at least have a drink at the bar together or whatever. And the restaurant people were really lovely and, in fact, seated this as a foursome. So that was great. So we were all overexcited. But it's funny, Caro, it's quite stressful. I don't know whether other Melburnians felt this or maybe it was just particular to me, um, having been in the same spot down at the beach for the entire lockdown period. But I had a kind of a, a social distancing feeling and I had a disconnection from going out and a total smile on my face because you're there in a queue, everybody's QRing as they come in, uh, I had my Medicare vaccination certificate working. That was all going well. But one of our party, um, husband Pete, did not have it all connected beforehand. And so uh. he was stressed. And there were a number of people in the queue who were doing the same thing, trying to connect it, trying to get onto my gov ID, uh, and very stressful. And, and then when you arrive at the door... The staff, of course, are quite stressed. And I think this is what we're going to see in retail. When retail opens up on the weekend, we're going to see the same kind of thing. A lot of workers and a lot of customers are all trying to meet in the middle and everybody's trying to be nice and calm and relaxed. But when you're running 15 minutes late for your appointment and your phone isn't working properly, it's all very um, new and... Anyway, finally we're seated. And then there's the whole thing of, well, you can take your mask off at dinner. At one point I went to the ladies and I thought, okay, so when you go to the restroom, do I have to wear my mask as I cross the restaurant? Um, what, what's the, what, how do I navigate that? What do I do there? Um, and but that's not, it's hardly a, a, a chore after what we've all been through. I mean, just put your mask on or don't. Oh, no, it is. No, it is. I'm not, I'm not um, complaining about being out in the big wide world. It's wonderful. But these are interesting issues. Yep. Um, yep. I, noticed, I noticed outside uh, one of the restaurants driving home, there were some smokers. So I thought, hmm, interesting dilemma. Smokers, masks, you take it off clearly to have a drag. But then when you're standing around chatting five minutes later, do you put the mask back on? I mean, it's all very interesting, isn't it? It's a lot of politics, social politics around all this. But it was really great to be out again. And um, for this weekend, I've booked yoga and movies. I'm very excited. 
Well, I look forward to hearing about the first movie you're going to see. Everyone's very excited here about the Bond film opening and also the French Dispatch, which, as you know, was advertised at our local cinema in the February before the first COVID outbreak. And I am so determined to see this Wes Anderson film, I cannot tell you. The one phenomenon I've noticed is, you talk about being 15 minutes late for the hairdresser, and I've always been a notorious late person. I'm never late now. Everywhere I've gone since I've been here, I'm dead on time because your bookings are so difficult. And when you get one, you are so determined to get places on time. In fact, in Paris, we kept arriving five minutes early because, you know, we get an email, you've got into this restaurant or you've got here, you've got there. You see, but that's what I mean. So, I mean, it's a, it's a small problem. Like, let's say in, in, you know, the way the world is at the moment, this is a small problem. But it does create stress, don't you think? There's a kind of a, there's an innate stress, whereas going out, or being five minutes late for the hairdresser was was never really a kind of a a heart, a heart um, racing moment. But now I find my heart's racing a lot, and I'm quite nervous. And you know, I was running a couple of minutes late for the hairdresser today, and I was really concerned because I knew that she had all of this back to back to back to back. And I don't know. I just I, I feel like I'm a so star. you should have been. That's dreadful. You should never... I mean, imagine being late for your first colour and blow wave. <laughs> no, well, um, the the other novelty for me was travelling with a baby, and it was such a success. Sunday we gave Best on Ground, actually. She behaved so well, and she was so happy and lovely, and she must have been wondering what the hell was going on in Paris. But, you know, the hotel had these beautiful big baths, and, you know, we were able to bath her, and that was another... That was another novelty in itself anyway. So um, we're all very lucky. We're appreciating life, I think, Corrie. Well, Caro, we uh, we don't have Miles from Prince Wine Store with us today. Sending hello to our friends at Prince Wine Store. We will skip along to Crush of the Week and you have a crush. Corrie, I don't know if you're going to agree with me about my crush of the week, but I'm going to mention the editor of The Age. And, yes, I am a contributor to The Age, so I have to make that my um, – well, I have to make that disclosure before I say this, but I think Gay Alcorn did the right thing in deciding to end the tenure of Michael Lunig. I think – and Michael Lunig is not the first cartoonist to upset me with some of his images – and some of his um, ideas and what I think sometimes are cartoonists making outrageous comments and getting away with it because they are cartoonists. Now, obviously, there are far, far worse examples. And, you know, Larry Pickering's one that we sort of saw recently on that Julia Gillard documentary. And even Mark Knight, who is a terrific bloke and a great cartoonist, but I thought he went... Over, he stepped over the line when he did the Serena Williams cartoon a few years ago. I'm not saying he meant to do it, but that was a really inappropriate, offensive cartoon for me and for so many. Obviously, it was highly offensive to Serena Williams. But good on you, Gay Alcorn. Sometimes you've just got to make a call. And I don't think it was the anti-Daniel Andrews sentiment that got in the sack. It was almost a comparison to Tiananmen Square or you invoking that image with the injection that I think in the end the age just went enough's enough. Good on you having that as a crush. That would not have been my crush. I don't entirely agree with you, but, um, you know, I have full regard for Gay as an editor and it's the editor's decision and right, of course, as it should be what goes in the paper and what doesn't. But I do think terminating the employment of somebody who's been there nearly 50 years um, without uh, warning or without pulling... Pulling, you can always pull a cartoon. An editor doesn't have to run it. 
Um, I think it's absolutely yeah, but- huge. Learning is a learning is an institution, and um, it's uh, it's a difficult one for me. No doubt it's terribly sad. And oh, look, I've, I spent time with him. I remember interviewing him when I wrote the forward to Jeff Slattery's um, first cookbook, Simple Flavours. And he's such an intelligent, lovely man when we spoke. But look, he, he really started, he lost me a few years, well, it was quite a few years ago now with that whole, um, remember the whole um, sort of childcare issue, that flag he flew for a long time about women putting their children into childcare. And I didn't like that. I found it, look, I found it sexist. I found it offensive. And I know it deeply offended a lot of people. And I don't think this was um, an on-the-spot decision, Corey. I think this has been a long time coming. And I think, there, you know, it wasn't just a one-off incident. And good on you, Gay, for making the tough call. But no doubt it's very sad because he has been absolutely brilliant over so many years. He is an institution. And unfortunately, um, this time has... Um, really created a line in the sand, hasn't it, to the way people think about things and the way people behave. Well, Eddie, and it's also interesting too that your employer, Channel 9, who now owns The Age, of course, is actually one of their bestsellers on their shop section of their website is Lunig's 2022 calendar. So that'll be interesting. I know. Sales are affected there. He's been a marketing phenomenon, hasn't he, because he's such a brilliant artist and his writing is so beautiful. Um, but even some of his own family have made some pretty extraordinary, extraordinarily sad and negative comments about Michael Lunig. So anyway, that's my crush of the week. And um, on that note, we're going to move into BSF. I've been hogging the books over the last few weeks, so you've got one for me now. I do, Caro. Look, you will love this book. And uh, and everybody who, who kind of loves a big story with... Uh, terrific characters over a couple of different um, time frames are going to love this book. I'm holding it up to the camera so you can see it in case you happen to run into it in an Amsterdam English-speaking bookshop, Caro. This is by award-winning Californian writer Maggie Shipstead. Now, she's she's very well known in the US. She's won a couple of important literary awards, not so well known here in Australia. She's in her late 30s. Oh my, oh my, I think she's a terrific talent. This book, Great Circle, by Maggie Shipstead, is shortlisted for the Booker Prize this year and the winner will be announced later this month. Or in fact, it might even be next week. Um, So Great Circle is a story of um, the woman aviator Marion Graves uh, who is rescued in this book. She's rescued from a shipwreck as a baby. She lives a very dramatic life, even though she has a rather solitary childhood in rural Montana. And those years are described beautiful landscape, uh, the sense of isolation, um, growing up almost as an orphan, but she does have a twin brother with whom she's very close and has a huge affinity. But as a child, she comes across her first flying machine. This is kind of 1920s um, at a local air show. And uh, the proprietor of the air show is, uh, is intrigued by this curious child, shows her the, um, the, the flying machines, and Marion Graves is hooked from that moment. And she goes on to fulfil her destiny. She flies during World War II. She circumnavigates the globe by flying over the North and South Poles. And don't we love an aviator story? Aren't they just full of drama and 
geography and so fantastic. So then the second part of this book, Caro, is the story of Hadley Baxter, a troubled, drug-taking, wild-living, former child Hollywood child actor who is trying very hard to be taken seriously as an adult actor, and she's chosen to play Marion in a bio picture. So this is current day, this is contemporary, and Hadley, during her research into the role of Marion, she delves deeper than anyone has before into this wild and troubled life. It's the story of two women, their lives entwined. It's action-packed, as I said, and it's absolutely absorbing. And and Maggie Shipstead, I have to say, is a really beautiful writer. So, Caro, did you ever read Manhattan Beach by Jennifer Egan a couple of years, about four or five years ago? You know I did, Corrie, and we actually went and saw her at the Wheeler Centre talk you about came. it, remember? Yeah, of yeah. course, you came. Exactly right. Look, it's got a, it's got this, this novel has a touch of Manhattan Beach. It's, it has love the feel that. of The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt, which you and I love. Um, we had a we had a book in the shop a couple of years ago called The Huntress by Kate Quinn. Um, a, a, not quite as literary as this novel, but it was set in World War Two, and it was a really fascinating story of an all female, uh, based on a true story, an all female Soviet bomber squad that um, when the Germans invaded uh, Russia in World War II, this group of women decided to get together. They found a few old planes, a really incredible story. So there's something very evocative about um, the female aviator and Great Circle is really worth the read. It's amazing given how little opportunity women were given in the time of the early days of flying, that, you know, when you think aviatrixes or aviators, you go straight to Amelia Earhart or Amy Johnson. I mean, they were two of the Wright brothers, obviously. But it's funny, isn't it, that women navigators and explorers, A, they make great stories, and there were quite a few of them. There were quite a few of them. And, you know, the, the thing that is um, interesting as I read this novel, I've almost finished it, is actually, is the, the, amount, of, um, the amount of bucks that were thrown their way by... Um, entrepreneurs and by uh, philanthropists and by, by men and women and, and rich people who just wanted to kind of, I don't know, vicariously get their kicks from somebody, you know, okay, here you are, Charles Lindbergh, try and fly, try and fly across the Atlantic. It's very interesting. Well, you're on a roll. So take me through what you've been watching on the screen lately. You haven't actually been to the movies yet? No, not yet. So I'll have something to report next week. But, Caro, I know that you, or I think from memory, you caught a couple of episodes of Rick Stein's Cornwall when, before you went away. Would that be right? Well, it's just that, I mean, I've seen it over the years. Like, I remember his beautiful Christmas show set in Cornwall in those beautiful darkened pubs and eating incredible seafood. But I haven't, is this a new series or is this just? Yeah, it's a, it's, so it's a new no. Okay, so it's a new BBC series and it um, it's screened on SBS, uh, not sure, I think a couple of months ago, maybe at the start of our lockdown here in Melbourne. Um, but certainly you can access it as I have been on SBS On Demand. I completely forgot that this one had gone to air 
Um, Trudy, again, mentioning the the walking Cornwall gang, uh, she, I think, told us about this when she caught the first episode. And I don't know where we were or where my headspace was. I can get to it. But the catalyst for me revisiting this, and I've now watched about four or five episodes, um, Caro, there's a great show on Thursday nights on SBS at the moment at 7.30. It's called Devon and Cornwall, Michael Portillo. Michael Portillo, a former British MP, who is now, he has a He's on trains and travel. He's become a bit like a more serious, earnest bloke version of Joanna Lumley. But have you seen any of this while you've been away, caught it on an aeroplane or anything? Look, I haven't, I'm embarrassed to say. We've done a bit of... We've been mainly doing Scandi Noir and Midsummer Murders. It's all that's really been available to us. (laughs) And not much... Not much TV in Paris. I really recommend both of these when you get back, Dal. It's um, SBS On Demand. So Devon and Cornwall with Michael Portillo led me back to Rick Stein's Cornwall. Obviously, Rick Stein has the focus, but nonetheless, it's such a wonderful story because, of course, he he spent so much of his life in Cornwall as a young boy and went back there when he decided to open his first restaurant. Michael Portillo is doing the walk across the... um, the northwest um, face of Cornwall, and that is just such a great series. Uh, so many people have, have reconnected with me saying, I heard you went to Cornwall a couple of years ago. I'm watching this show on SBS. It's really great. You know, can you tell me where to go? So I feel like I've suddenly been reborn as a Cornwall um, walking expert, even though we only walked for a few days. But it's really evocative, and I highly recommend them both if people are at home and are absolutely fed up with Netflix, go travelling with Rick Stein and Michael Portillo. Well, I'll search on Netflix because over here you can find a lot of those SBS on demand shows on Netflix, including one from ABC, iView, which is Love on the Spectrum, which has been a smash hit internationally. And the second series we ended up watching... um, Oh, just a few nights ago, or the end of the second series. Absolutely brilliant. And I've been to Cornwall too, literary, in a literary sense. It, look, they're, they're, again, they're not great literary masterpieces, but the latest Nicola Upson, who's written the Josephine Tay series, is called The Dead of Winter. And I think I sent you a picture of it the other day. Set on St. Michael's Mount in Cornwall. Think Christmas Eve. Think Nazis wanting to move. Um, it's just at the, at the cusp of World War II, um, desperate to um, take over Cornwall, which was obviously, which was you know the idea at the start of World War II. Marlena Dietrich fe- features in this book, part of a house party um, set up on St Michael's Mount to raise money for um, Jewish children being repatriated to Britain during the war. Oh, it's a grisly murder mystery, but it is absolutely wonderful in terms of the way it describes St Michael's Mount. We have got to go there. What's it called again? The Dead of Winter by Nicola Upson. There you go. That's one for you, Linny Swinburne. We'll put that on the show notes as well so you don't miss it. Now, Caro, uh, you have a recipe. I do, and I have to thank our friend Mary Clark for this recipe. Um, we mentioned last week that it was a chestnut cake. It's actually called a castagnaccio. It's a chestnut flour, raisin and rosemary cake. I ate it at Mary's house many years ago and thought it was the most incredible um, hints of savoury as well as sweet. One of the most incredible cakes I've ever eaten. Corrie, you look at the recipe and you go, oh, my Lord, that's difficult. It is not difficult at all. The most difficult part of this recipe is finding chestnut flour. 
Um, I, I suggest you look at Italian delis. You look for a good Italian deli. I found it at a, um, a organic supermarket chain here called Echo Plaza. Keep it in the fridge because um, the chestnut flower, because I think it's more... It's more prone to weevils than your ordinary flower, Corrie, so you should no, definitely keep it. I don't want them in my house. This cake is actually made in two parts. Um, it's very, very simple. The bottom half of the cake is basically the flour, all the flowers you use, salt and butter. Um, you make it into a breadcrumb mixture by hand or by, you know, by electric mixer. You put that in the bottom part of a square tin, like a lamington tin, which is about oh, 18 by 28 centimetres, and it's obviously been lined and baking paper, etc. And the top half is the other half of that flour mixture, which has become like a, you know, breadcrumb mixture. But you're adding, um, oh, basically bicarb soda, milk, egg. Um, uh, what else is there? On, and then at the end, you just scatter the whole thing with rosemary and pine nuts and drizzle it with olive oil. Corrie, it is the most delicious cake you will ever eat. Serve it on the day. If you serve it the next day, maybe with a bit of yogurt and honey. Absolutely oh, delicious. It sounds fantastic, Carol. It's absolutely Thank you, you know very much. I love a slightly savoury pudding. Remember, remember, I used to cook my mother's avocado pie, chiffon pie. We'll never forget the avocado chiffon pie. I loved it. It was slightly unusual. This is absolutely delicious. This cake, and as I said, just a small piece of it for pudding or with afternoon tea is so delicious and it's surprisingly easy to make once you find the chestnut flour. So Corrie, that was BSF for Red Energy. Thank you again, obviously, to Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131806? Now, you're grumpy and me just channeling you and what you're like. Melbourne's out of lockdown, so I think there'll be more traffic on the roads. What could Corrie be grumpy about this week? Could it be road-related or parking-related? Okay, yes. So it is road-related. <laughs> Caro, for the first time in a long while, I was crossing through Richmond. Okay, so everybody who knows Melbourne has to imagine that Swan Street, Hunt Road slash Hoddle Street uh, intersection, right? Right near the Richmond Railway Station. And so I'm travelling east to west and I'm chugging along there. The traffic's ever so slow, even though we're in lockdown. I don't know why everybody was out and about. And I wanted to drive to the city, past the Rod Laver, Rod Laver Arena, um, the Exhibition Street's extension there, right? So, I mean, I think is the right lane. And we go through the intersection and all of a sudden there's all this signage telling me I have to go right and do a U-turn that takes me back to Punt Road that presumably takes me to the north of the city. So I didn't want to do that. So you put your indicator on, sorry, made an error. I didn't know there was this really weird traffic situation. Carol, no one let me in. No one. Now, when did this, when did, when did all of this Richmond area change like this? Why, why did I have to? So I ended up, I had to do a hairpin bend and go around U-turn and then um, go left, which was going north up Punt Road, to then, you know, cut through around the MCG and everything. I eventually got to my destination, but it's so confusing. So I was furious about the fact that I was, you know, at the Fitzroy Gardens and not where I wanted to be. But what made me more angry was that not one motorist let me in. Now, I'm sorry, we're coming out of lockdown. 
everybody just be a bit calm and a bit gentle and go a bit easy on each other. That that's outrageous. What happened to the spirit of camaraderie after um, all those years, all those months locked away? It does sound a bit like driving through um, Belgium. I have to say, <laughs> I cannot tell you about the oh, I cannot tell you about the roadworks and the was surprises there a bit, we was encountered. A bit of curse, cursing in the car. I always love when everybody attacks the driver or the navigator at once. No, well, I only had a brief time in the front seat and I don't think I'll ever get it again after my... Unfortunately, I told Brendan to turn left at one point and Rose and Oscar at that point sitting in the back seat with Sonny worked out that my navigation was on the walking, you know, the walking man. with the... <laughs> And the time, expected time to get back to Amsterdam was two days. <laughs> Did not oh, go down. You didn't have that dreadful thing, that Tom, which is the European version of, um, you know, I call her Svetlana, the woman who lives in our car. As, as Harriet says, Mopsy Svetlana's being very bossy today. She doesn't say, they say thank you because she's always saying, turn left at the intersection. <laughs> I think that is a very. keep saying, Mopsy, why doesn't she ever say please or thank you? Mm. You can. Well, the one we had was actually a man, and he kept interrupting our navigation to tell us about yet another dreadful. We managed to avoid a half hour stopover in Antwerp where there was dreadful traffic. Oscar got us out of that. So he won the award for navigation. Brendan definitely won the award for driving. He drove the whole way back and definitely deserved the stiff whiskey he had at the end of it. Anyway, do you want to kick off six quick questions? Yeah, I do. And even though you're away there, I know you're, you and Brendan are keeping up with uh, Melbourne News. Does Crown Casino deserve one more chance, Caro? Oh, I tell you, barely, barely would be my answer. The only thing I would say is it's a bit hard to unravel, dismantle the whole thing now. It does seem to be under the, under the guidance of a new board, new bosses, etc. But, Corrie, I hope that these um, stringent... Um, sort of de- uh, the, the stringent and different ways they have tried to re-guide the casino as it, you know, enters this new era. I just hope that all the restrictions and all the different bars on the casino, I hope they stick to it and I hope they don't slacken off again because really it has been an utter disgrace what has been what has been disclosed, I reckon. I don't know about you. I agree, I agree, I agree. Now, should unvaccinated players be allowed into Australia to play in the open, in the tennis? Absolutely not. Even Absolutely. if they do, even if they spend time in quarantine. No, I think I, I look. I, I agree with um, our. I love his title. Our COVID response commander, Jerome, Jerome Weimar. Um, he said yesterday, Cara, we only want vaccinated people at these major sporting events. We've got phenomenal experience and tradition here of running amazing sporting events and running them safely. We're not going to change that now. And I think the key word there for me was safely. You know, it's funny. I noticed um, the you know the Winter Olympics are now 100 days away in Beijing, I think it is, or in China. And um, I, I wondered what you were shuffling around. Have you, got a do- have you got a dog playing with you? Oh, hello, Panda. Oh look, she's hello, little girl. Hang on, I'll 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 make you bigger oh. so she can see you. Um, Panda, yeah, she's, you she's are going, okay, so, so here's um just a quick puppy question. If anybody has a GLT, how do you stop your puppies biting you? I'm tapping her on the nose, but we have to yep. really get this under control before she meets the grandchildren. And 
it's really quite annoying. The training is coming along well, but it's now this nipping and, and biting everything. Did Queenie do that? Yeah, well, ours was more jumping up, and our next door neighbour, Alex, who also has a Labrador, she has a spray bottle of water, you know, like you spray plants with, and whenever Patsy, her Labrador, jumps up, and she told me this, and it really worked with us, you spray them in the face with water, and they hate it. So whenever Panda nips you, spray her with water. That's your, godmother. that. That's your godmother's name, Patsy. She's <laughs> also my next door neighbour's Labrador. Lovely name. Now, Corrie, um, just one, just on the on the Winter Olympics, I should say, the unvaccinated skiers and snowboarders and all the other oh boy, there's some new fascinating events for to get the young and the women involved in the Winter Olympics. But um, I think it's 21 days hard quarantine if you're going into China, and the only people allowed to attend the events are people from mainland China, and they all have to be double vaccinated. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that works as well. It's going to be a real dilemma. I I think whatever your politics is about vaccination, I think there's a world trend, particularly for big sporting events, that people should be vaccinated, and I don't know why we should um, let the tennis players off. Carol, what was the biggest French scandal? Sorry. French scandal to hit the headlines this week. <laughs> Sexual harassment in the modelling industry, Corrie. Oh. Um, a whole bunch of um, former models are, are travelling back to Paris, not to kick off Fashion Week, which of course is um, opening in New York today, or I think it was yesterday, but um, six models have flown into Paris to testify against the former European chief of the elite model management agency, Gérard Marie. They're doing it in front of the Child Protection Unit in Paris. Carla Bruni has one, been one of the models to lead this charge. Um, a whole lot of... Um, a is whole lot of can models. I just ask, Carol, is she still married to Sarkozy, the former president? Not sure. That's terrible. I don't know. But that hasn't sort of come up in this. But there's this new non-profit um, fashion advocacy called Model Alliance. And all these models are coming forward to um, express their support. Elena Christensen has been one. It has been huge. And these six models have all going to testify against this bloke. They're accusing him of a lot more than just... Um, a lot more than sexual harassment, I've got to say. This bloke now lives in Ibiza. He was once married to Linda Evangelista, who has been, um, I'm not sure how, what she's been, what her stand is in all of this, but um, he, um, I think, in fact, um, Linda Evangelista um, has actually said that he was raped and trafficked as a teenager and similar abuse still takes place. Sorry, this is that's not Linda, that's somebody else. But um, it's going to be fascinating what happens to this bloke. And Parry Match, the headlines in, at every newsstand in Paris involve Gerard Marie and what these former models are going to do. So it's going to be really interesting how it pans like a, out. Sounds like a Harvey Weinstein all over again. Now, what media farewell made you cry this week? Um, Fran leaving Radio National's breakfast program. Oh, well, we knew this was coming. We didn't oh, know it was coming. Well, we didn't really. After 17 years, I know that she's been easing off and doing three and four days a week instead of the five. But Fran Kelly leaving Radio National, as I think it was Tanya Plibersek who said in a tweet, it's not just about, it's not about listening to Radio National's breakfast. It's about listening to Fran. And it's not the ABC doing the interview, it's Fran. And that's why all the pollies and all the business leaders and all the community leaders of Australia, years and years, have 
have done Radio National's breakfast before they've done anything else. Uh, so when she announced it, um, it was absolutely out of the blue on Monday morning. I think it was after the weather, actually. It was just it just came out of nowhere. And she suddenly, very quickly, became very emotional. And we know, we found out afterwards that her partner of many years, she was there in the studio. And, you know, it's a bit like you're very brave until you see mum and dad and then you start to cry. Well, I think she was probably holding it together until she saw her partner. And anyway, I, I just started crying in, in listening to it. I, I was so moved. So the big thing, of course, is who's going to take over her spot? Will it be Ellen Fanning? Will it be Hamish McDonald? Will it be Caroline Wilson? Oh, I, I can tell you who it won't be, Caroline Wilson. Uh, that would be a really, really tough job. And you're right, she's done it absolutely brilliantly. She's been a must-listen. Terribly sad, really. Um, so, Cara, we're all hanging out for this week's Dutch fact. What's your Dutch fact? Well, Corrie, as you know, I've been spending a bit of time in brown bars. Brown bars are these lovely old pubs that are everywhere in Amsterdam, everywhere in the Netherlands, really. And they look, they serve, often they serve coffee, they all serve food, but their beer lists are longer than their wine lists. And some of them are in the most incredible old buildings. We've got a lovely local one on the river that we go to called um, Cafe de Amstel, I think it is. But there's a whole lot of them. There's another one in our local village, which is an old um, grocery store, which has coffee, tea, cocoa in Dutch on the front. We walked in the other night and it was just party time, just a whole lot of locals having a great time drinking beers. But the, my Dutch fact is that on the counter of most of these wine bars for a snack, do you know what, guess what the snack is? Um, I don't know, pork crispies or... Hard-boiled um, eggs. Oh, what? And often they're free. So when you go and have your beer, and as I say, beer lists longer than wine lists, the beers are amazing, um, you can grab a hard-boiled egg. They you, they come with it. There's a little pot of mustard often on the side of the hard-boiled eggs. That's what you have with them. They're not always free, but they never seem to cost more than about one euro. Corrie... It is the most extraordinary thing you have ever seen. These brown bars are just extraordinary. They, so so I'm, um, I'm meeting a blind date. I'm on Tinder and I'm meeting a blind date at a brown bar and um, I say I'll have a gin and tonic and a hard-boiled egg. That is not good for the breath, Caro. That is not good for the breath. Curry, don't shoot the messenger, as the podcast always says. The other thing is gin and tonic, no. Dutch make beautiful gin. They serve great gin and tonics at wine bars and brown bars, but it's a cocktail. It's like a cocktail, so it's as expensive as a cocktail, whereas, and it's double the price of, for example, a whiskey or a vodka and tonic. So you stick to your gin drinking at home would be my um so, so my you know, advice. You know I don't drink beer, so if I go to a brown bar and I want to be, you know, reasonably budget conscious, what do, what do I order? Beer or um, no, there, I there's always that. I don't like beer. Well, a white or a red wine. They're usually around. You can always get a decent white or red for about four euros. But another one of these great brown bars is called Het Papiniland, which is um, oh, it's about four k's from where we're living. But it's, it's sort of not so far really from the, um, I suppose, more the um, oh, it's closer to Wester Park, but not that close to Wester Park either. Anyway, it's an absolutely beautiful brown I, I just, bar, I, tiny. I, 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 
I get the feeling next week's apology is going to be Rose again pulling you up on your Dutch accent. Het Papilleland. I don't know how you pronounce it, but that's how it's spelled phonetically. A tiny little brown bar on the corner of a canal, um, probably closer to the Jordan area, if anything. Corrie, there's, and the walls are covered in Delft, that beautiful Dutch blue and white china. Sure enough, sitting, Brendan and I found ourselves in that area a few days ago. We thought we'd pop off and have a glass of beer, sat on the canal. Brendan went inside. There they were, sitting on the counter, the hard-boiled eggs. Did he buy That's one? That. <laughs> no, we actually had some bitter bollen, which was very greedy. <laughs> now, that's my Dutch fact. What's your London fact this week? Oh, my London fact. You're going to love this. Caro, did you know that London has more statues of animals than it does of women? I did not know that. Can you believe that? I did not know that. So there's been – London has commissioned its first comprehensive statue audit. This comes from um, Sadiq Khan, who's the rather charismatic uh, Lord Mayor of London, who I must say I have a bit of a crush on. So he is looking at diversity or lack of, dare I say, in London statues. And this amazing fact has come out that of the 1,500 monuments in the capital, almost 50 of them are dedicated to historical women, women of the past, but there are 100 animal statues, double. Oh, that's extraordinary. So would you count the Diana monument as a statue? No, because it's more of a fountain, isn't it? Well, I haven't asked that. I don't know whether that's part of their study. But do you know what is part of their study? What did you and me and Trudy and Anna see as we headed off on our overnight stay on the sleeper out of Paddington Station. What did we see? Um, did we see a statue? We saw a statue of Paddington Bear, Michael Bond's character. Oh, Do you remember? Well, that's fair enough. I mean, Inclu I included, it's included in the animal statues of London. It's so does, does Queen Elizabeth I, for example, have a statue? Elizabeth I don't have the entire list of the 50, but I don't think actually... I mean, I've been around London a fair bit, as have you. I don't think I've ever seen a statue of Elizabeth I. There, there are a couple, a couple of um, Queen Victoria. She's here and there. Does Florence and Nightingale have a statue? <laughs> she has a statue. <laughs> J.K. Rowling? I mean, who knows? So, so your homework is that in the next few weeks, you, if, you know, if, if Sunday's all okay and everything's fine at, in the Dutch home, I want you and Brendan to go to London and Cornwall and I want you to go and count the statues and find the women and tell us who they are. And then I want you to go down to Cornwall and I want you to try um, – Rick Stein made this amazing apple charlotte. He went to this apple farm not far from um, – not far from um, – what was that town where Bob the driver dropped us? You know, at the fishing village before we walked to St Moore's. Oh, yes, not anyway, the road. No, I can't thing. remember. Uh, yep, sorry. Um, th there's a, an apple farm near there, and I want you to go to the apple farm. And I think I saw that one. I think I saw it, and it was in this beautiful sort of orchard of apples, and they were picking them up, and I did see that one. It looked absolutely wonderful. And Rick just out – I mean, I know he has a, he has a crew of 25 who, who are with him, but just, you know, out of the back he pull, of, the, of the van he pulls a Weber, and then he cooks the most amazing apple charlotte on the Weber. Unbelievable. 
Did your mum used to make that for you when you were, that was our favourite pudding, Apple Charlotte, with the toast with the sort of sugar on top? My mother only bought Sarah Lee, that's all we had. She made the avocado chiffon pie. She did make oh, yeah. I'll give you one thing, Caro. Should you be <laughs> And we still remember it. Look, this podcast could go on for hours because potties, of course, Caro and I haven't seen each other for three weeks now and I can't tell you, Caro, the number of friends um, who have said to me they wish that they were here in the room with you while we podcast, which they could be because I'm now on my second glass of wine. For you, it's just coffee in the morning. But everybody misses you, but it's so lovely for me to be able to see you. And I want to thank particularly Miss Jane, Jane Neal, our producer extraordinaire, who manages to bring Caro over the other side of the world, me here, us together, and, of course, all of our potties out there. Heading toward the 200, guys, just saying. Get ready. Corey. Before, before I let you go, and I know it's not on the agenda, but I just want to leave you with one thought, and I watched it in depth on the BBC News late last night. Why would, and it's a tragic story, and I'm so dread, dreadfully sorry for everyone involved, why would you point any sort of gun on a film set at anyone, even if you thought it had blanks in it? I just don't understand it. I just don't understand it. And I just say again, we just don't have a gun culture in our country, in Australia, and they don't have it here in the Netherlands either. And I just wonder if this tragic accident that involved, you know, that on the film set in um, New Mexico, I think it was, yeah, involving Alec Baldwin, whether whether it would have happened in other countries. Just so, it's just an, I can't understand why any gun would ever be pointed anyway and what the hell it was doing with live rounds in it, I do not know. And also, as the stories are evolving, Caro, as we know, uh, there have been complaints, there were complaints leading up to the incident about the welfare and occupational health and safety, which cannot be ignored. So all of this is going to come out. But, yeah, it's just such a shocking, tragic. We must talk about this next week because we've now been going for about four and a half hours. But listen, you go and enjoy your day in Amsterdam. I'll enjoy my evening here. Miss Jane will um, is going to have five well-earned days off. That is such a hackneyed phrase, but, my God, I don't know anybody who works harder than Jane. And we would like to thank our podcast supporters, Red Energy, 100% Australian Electricity and Gas. Uh, we're so grateful for your support. And also to our listeners, big thank you, hugs and kisses to all of you. If you want to connect with us, don't forget our Instagram account at Don't Shoot Pod and also Facebook and Twitter. And if you do want the show notes delivered each week, hit the sign up button on Facebook. If that doesn't work for you, just contact Jane. Feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au, but not for the next five days because she's having a little break over the Melbourne Cup weekend. Thank you, ball boys. Thank you, linesmen. And, Cara, what do we say? Especially if those ball boys are vaccinated. Don't shoot the messenger, Corrie. 